Blog Talk Radio. a discussion on the magical aspects of Abraham Merritt's, that's 1884-1943, novels and stories of exotic fantasy adventure. Merritt was a highly respected journalist who wrote his colorful tales of the occult and the bizarre for his own pleasure and not as potboilers for the pulps. Even though Argosy and other pulp magazines were his main outlet. Now, his work had the quality of literature and the mytho-folkloric erudition of the Robert Graves. Merritt had a library of over 5,000 books on myth, folklore, and the occult. His tales of lost cities, ancient secret cults, and strange otherworldly phenomenon are unparalleled in beauty and imagination. His People of the Pit, 1917, was a profound influence on Howard Phillips' Lovecraft and Merritt's masterpiece, The Ship of Ishtar, 1924, described Richard Shaver's interdimensional simultane concept. And, of course, it was also the template for our pathworking soul travel boat. His Dwellers in the Mirage, 1932, was an inspiration for my science fiction novel, Grillmaster. Now, Merritt was steeped in Blavatsky's Atlantis and Lemurian lore, and the obscure legendary sources behind these lost civilizations. His The Moon Pool, 1921, lured us out to the ruins of Lemuria in the Pacific. See beyond Lemuria. So, if you want to spend an hour with the Dream Maker, then come along with us and we'll set sail for Evening Isles. Fantastical. Now, um, consulting little Wikipedia about Merritt, which, of course, is a nice, nice article on him, uh, we find that he was born in Beverly, New Jersey, and moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1894. Originally trained in law, he turned to journalism, first as a correspondent, later as an editor. 
And according to Peter Henning, Merritt survived a harrowing experience when he was a young reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer, about which he refused to ever speak. But would, as Henning claims, mark a turning point in Merritt's life. Whatever that was, um, Merritt certainly was not a... a, a, a he didn't uh, quail from adventure. He, when he was 18 years old, he was down exploring the jungles of Yucatan uh, back in the turn of the century and, and um, uh, actually uncovering ruins that no, uh, uh what we now call, or what, were they, what they then called no white man had ever seen. <laughs> uh, Merritt uh, was a, a world traveler and an adventurer, and um, uh, a very consummate uh, scholar of folklore and the occult. Uh, really, he was, in his own way, uh, a very accomplished cultural anthropologist, uh, specializing, of course, in, in the shamanic and the, uh, and the, uh, and the occult activity. Uh, so he had uh, also an interest in in uh, in crime journalism and uh, and uh, all sorts of uh, action and what have you. So he was not just a, an armchair scholar, a world traveler, and and, uh, and and he was a very very successful journalist. In fact, he was one of the highest paid journalists in the United States. He he was the editor of uh, a. Sunday supplement called the American Weekly. Now, uh, I know a lot of you these days, you don't remember. Uh, well, yeah, you've probably seen the Sunday supplement parade in some of the magazines. But back before and during and right after World War II, uh, these big newspaper chains, like the Hearst chain that, that Merritt worked for, uh, they had a weekly magazine that went out with the Sunday a Sunday paper, and this was this magazine was as important as uh, was Saturday Evening Post, and it had a it had a, a circulation. Of course, it was tremendous, and so Merritt was the he was the longtime editor in chief of the American Weekly, and uh, as I said, at one point he was earning. And uh, in 1919, uh, he was earning $100,000 a year. And that, of course, is, gosh, that's, that's over, over, well over 500000 a year, more like getting up toward, toward 8000 a year, uh, $800,000 a year today. So the man was very, very successful as a journalist, highly respected. But his hobby, along with uh, raising very exotic plants, now, I'll give you a little bit of his idea here. He, he raised orchids and plants linked to witchcraft and magic, monkshood, wolfbane, blue datura, peyote, and cannabis. And um, who knows what else. Now, this this uh, kind of shows up in his, in his stories because they do have his, his novels have a psychedelic quality to them. The descriptions are vivid. And, uh, in fact, I, I was mentioning to, to Zandria before we went on the air that, that I'm wondering whether or not he's, 
had access to a little psilocybin in there because uh, his descriptions uh, of his lost worlds and his uh, mysterious hidden uh, hidden empires uh, they they really shimmer and glisten with that uh, electric uh, glowing psilocybin look. And uh, yeah, Mary was married twice, both times to an, both times to an Eleanor, and uh, um, and he uh, he died suddenly of a heart attack in his winter home at Indian Rocks Beach, Florida, in 1943. Now at the age of 59, by the way. Now, Merritt's Merritt's writing uh, was. Influenced, of course, by why H. Ryder Haggard. She, of course, naturally had that influenced him. In fact, that that really that really was uh, H. Ryder Haggard. She probably uh, was the basic plot line that Merritt used uh, used several times because uh, he he um, liked the idea of the uh, of the hero who was a reincarnation of some ancient warrior. He used that a couple of times, and of course that's in she, that, that, that was Haggard's plot. And the mysterious, very mysterious, magical female figure. Uh, now, of course, in the case of she, uh, Aisha, she who must be obeyed, she had a kind of, uh, of, a, of an evil uh, touch to her. Merit, uh, Merit's uh, heroines were usually uh, rather virginal, mysterious, uh, basically, basically good, and uh, and usually very, very scantily clad, uh, which of course uh, appealed to uh, teenage uh, readers of uh, the pulp magazines, naturally. In fact, if you go on. Um, if you go on uh, a search, I think you'll find it in Amazon somewhere. Somebody has done a, re- a modern reproduction of a planet stories with the ship of Ishtar uh, on the cover, and that is, whoo, whoo, boy, is that ever sexy. And but let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the the magical aspects. And how this influences uh, how this influences magic certainly influenced me. I know when I was growing up as a kid, I uh, back when I was uh, 16 years of age, I I read the Moon Pool. Now, the Moon Pool was one of Merritt's Lost World novels, and it appeared I think first in 1918, and then it finally came out. I was in, in magazine form and. In two different uh, installments, there was Moonpool and there was Conquest of Moonpool, and they put them together and made a, a and published them as a book in uh, 1921. So when I was 16, of course, that was long after 1921. I know, I know, I'm, I know. Some people think I'm very old, but actually, I'm, I'm really, you know, I, I'm really, I'm really not that old. I, I, I you know. Uh, I, mean, I just turned 100 just recently. I mean, I'm, I did. <laughs> but 
anyway, uh, so in 1916, I was in, 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 well, in, in, when I was 16 years old, <laughs> I was, that was back around 19, you know, 1950, 50-something. And uh, so I read The Moon Pool. And The Moon Pool uh, is one of these Lemurian stories, and it's based on, you know, kind of uh, some Levatsky and, and church word, of course. And and also, uh, Merritt, didn't, he wasn't just satisfied with Blavatsky and Churchward. He dug into the actual folklore, really obscure legends, uh, that backed these, these, uh, these things up. He, he, he went to Blavatsky and Churchward's sources. And uh, he was he was that that profound in his research, and so he had uh, got an old account by uh, uh, by a sailor from back in the whaling era of the Venice of the Pacific, Don Madol, this this fantastic complex of ruins out in the, well, in the middle of the Pacific, out in the middle of Micronesia, on on Fonte Island. Um, in those days, they called it Ponape, as now Pompeii. But anyway, this strange stone city that covered 11 square miles, right in the middle of the Pacific, and nobody wanted to talk about it because nobody could figure out what it was all about. I mean, it, it, here's this 11 square mile stone city, completely deserted, out there on this island in the middle of the Pacific, and, and uh, hardly anybody knows anything about it. Uh, so, uh, Merritt, uh, with his nose for folklore and all that, and uh, he conceived that that there was a, a pool there in the vault in the middle of the fortress and what have you, which we eventually went to and got down into and everything else. But that's you know you, you can pick you can get. Pick that all up and beyond Lemuria, and you get around to it. But anyway, uh, according to Merritt's story, there was a a strange, sparkling, but beautiful but very evil creature called the Dweller that came up out of this pool in the middle of the vault in the middle of Nanmadol in the island out there. And this dweller lured people during the full moon into the vault, and it put its it put its mark on them, and and they became slaves, and they were taken down and down into an underground cavern way below the island, this huge cavern, in which the last uh, the last survivors of Lemuria. Uh, had this civilization that was now. This is beginning to sound somewhat like the Shaver mystery. That should not surprise you because Merritt was not just according to me, but according to Wikipedia, Merritt was quite an influence on Shaver, and he obviously was. So here is this huge underground cavern where uh, you have good Lemurians. Uh, and bad Lemurians, and they have ancient technology and ancient ray guns and all sorts of interesting stuff. But they also um, they also have a a race of frog frog like creatures that are their guardians. And the the the, the dark uh, Lemurian dark forces 
They worship the dweller, and he brings them slaves, and they make sacrifices to him. And this dweller is a is a one of these creatures that Merritt liked to create. Merritt liked to create completely alien creatures. Uh, he he uh, I wrote a book called The Metal Monster, of which. I'm sure had an influence on the guys that wrote the Transformer movies. Uh, the metal monster was was a uh, a metal being that that uh, had a complex, a hidden complex in a valley, a hidden valley in Tibet, and uh, this metal being uh, could compose itself in any number of combinations from different what uh, appeared to be platonic solids <laughs> of metal. And it was a sentient being uh, in various components. And it was it was evil. It uh, was going to exterminate the human race. And in the end, it was sucking power from the sun. This was the metal monster. And uh, and so Merrick liked to... He, he was very innovative, and he liked to create these, uh, these alien beings. Um... One of the uh, stories that he did that, of course, uh, influenced uh, influenced uh, me uh, in my Drillmaster novel was Dwellers in the Mirage. And this this was one that was, uh, was a novel. It was set in in uh, in, in Mongolia in uh, the Uyghur area, and and you know the Uyghurs have been in the news lately. They they've been they're 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 now Muslims. They they were uh, they had their own religion sometime before uh, Islam. But but we the Uyghurs are uh, a Turkish tribe in that area with a very very ancient history, and they had a a civilization that uh, goes back all oh, back into the early. Uh, let's say 1500 BC, something like this, and they're very little known about them at that time, and and a little more known about them now because they're rebelling against the Chinese. But other than that, they had this fantastic earlier civilization. So Merritt, liking to dig into things like that, he he uh, had a, a, a he actually uh, exploited the idea that. Uh, that Mongolia was the original home of the Caucasoid race of the of the uh, of, of, of even even of the Nordics, and and there is by the way, I know that sounds like uh, Blavatskyan racism and all that, but actually we're beginning to find out now that it's not so fantastic. I mean we've right there in the South the Gobi Desert we've dug up. Uh, uh, Caucasian mummies uh, are, and I've, in fact, I saw them. I saw a beautiful, beautiful woman, red-haired, uh, with a with features of just absolutely breathtaking beauty, from uh, long before the time of Christ, mummified, wearing, and she must have been almost six feet tall, wearing a a plaid kilt. And uh, so Merritt, he, uh, Merritt was writing a story about this, Dwellers in the Mirage, where uh, this this uh, uh, young Norwegian 
a hero is actually the reincarnation of this warrior uh, who was originally uh, one of the lords of the Uyghurs. And uh, so he goes back in the, the, the mirage is the interdimensional gateway that they the, that they live in. And this this hideous creature that they sacrificed to is and this this was really a stroke of imagination. The Kraken, that gigantic giant squid, but it actually in this story it was interdimensional, and and they fed it, they fed it on pregnant women, and and it it, it, it lived behind a huge mirror, and they would throw these chained pregnant girls into through the, the mirror into the into the jaws of the Kraken. Oh boy! Anyway, so that that um, inspired me to, to uh, take the uh, take the Kraken and move it into the stratosphere and make an air squid out of it and call it the Mother Drow and 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 so I had a uh, a previous uh, my hero had a previous incarnation and so so I, that obviously Dwarves and Mirage influenced me with Drillmaster and and uh, now I don't know if you can talk about Merit and the ship of Ishtar a little bit. The ship of Ishtar, I think, and I think there are people who know Merit and, and uh, those who uh, science uh, fiction editors and all would all agree on this. The ship of Ishtar is Merit's masterpiece. And the ship of Ishtar, that was 1924, the ship of Ishtar is a, um, an interdimensional story. And it is where Merit establishes what I think eventually this this was where was where Shaver really got his idea for the simultane, uh which he came up with in nineteen forty nine. This was written in nineteen twenty four. And of course Merritt was a quite an influence on Shaver, obviously. So um here's how the story goes, so you can get the, the idea of it. Um a young a man who is uh, rather well off, he's an archaeologist, but he's disillusioned. It's the lost generation. He's come back from World War One, and he's uh, suffering from what we now call combat stress disorder or whatever, and they called it shell shock in those days. And he's in, in disillusioned and all, but he has uh, a very good friend, an old archaeologist over in Iraq, and so he gets this big crate, comes comes in from Iraq, and he opens up the crate in his in his room, and the crate has inside it a great big what appears to be a stone block, but the block isn't all that heavy, and it's kind of the stone is kind of translucent, and it does have cuneiform carvings on it. And there's a letter, of course, from his friend, the old archaeologist, uh, which is kind of an enigmatic letter, telling him he's sending him this block, and, and uh, perhaps he can just decipher the uh, the hieroglyphics. Well, not hieroglyphics, they're cuneiform. Perhaps he can he can decipher that, and, and the old man doesn't have time to, so he's sending the block to him and whatever. So uh, the young man contemplates the block. And he contemplates the block some more, and he he uh, then finally he taps the block almost 
in desperation because they can't figure out the, the cuneiform. And he hits the block, and the block disintegrates. And that's late at night. The block disintegrates, and inside the block, he finds this this model ship. And it's about three feet long, and it's beautifully detailed. And it's a, a ship of a period, you know, about 6,000 years old. Uh, and it's a galley, of course. It has one big sail, and it has... And it has two two ranks of oars, but it is all white in the from the bow to midships. It's all white, and from the midships to the stern, it's all black. And there are little figures both at the oars and on the decks, and the detail is exquisite. And the ship seems to have a and I have some sort of a supernatural quality to it, obviously. And so he contemplates it some more, and and uh, and the ship emanates a, a very cloying odor. It's very, very almost a narcotic odor. And he starts to go into an altered, uh, altered uh, state of consciousness. And then. He is overwhelmed, and the room, the walls of the room fall away, and he is drawn into the ship. Now, uh, at this point, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read the description of that interdimensional experience. And the reason why I'm reading that right from the book is to show you, this is 1924, and to show you, if you pay very close attention to the the wording here, you'll see that this is one of the first, if not the first, description of the of the parallel worlds of what Shaver eventually uh, detailed as the simultane. Now, Shaver's version of the simultane was also influenced by H.G. Wells' time machine, but this was the original template for it. Now, uh, I will we'll go ahead and find this for you in the book, and I'll read it to you. He opened the bedroom door cautiously and listened. He slipped through and back to the room where the ship lay. Lifting its shroudings, he drew one deep breath of wonder at its beauty, and then turned off the electrics. And as his eyes accustomed themselves to the darkness, he caught a dim shimmering where the ship rested. Faint reflections from the avenue's lights penetrating the window's hangings. How silent the room had become. It was filling with silence as a vessel fills with water. Now a sound broke the stillness, the lapping of little waves, numerous, languorous, caressing. He realized and that his eyes were closed. He strove with all his might to open them. The lapping of the waves came closer. By an effort, he half-raised his eyelids. There was a wide mist opposite him, a globular mist of silver drifting down upon him as though it were the curved breast of another world, an impacting world. No an interpenetrating world, fleeting, 
incredibly swift was the comprehension. In the infinitely small point of time, it sparked through his mind. He knew it for revelation, explanation, the only key to the inexplicable. By light of that spark, Kenton saw the globe upon which he lived. Not for what it seems, but for what it is, an etheric vibration. An etheric vibration between the intervals of whose pulsing pulse the electrons of other interlaced worlds upon worlds, children of that primal force whose vibrations are matter in all the guises that we know and that we do not know. He visualized these worlds and his own as congries of electrons, each in reality as wide apart as the planets from each other. As those same planets from the sun, he saw through the abysses of space between these specks myriads of similar congries grouped into unseen, unseeable worlds, each world spinning, whirling, yet untouching and untouched by any other, interlaced, interlocked, interpenetrating, embracing worlds keyed to lower and higher pitch than ours, and each in utter ignorance of the other embrace, worlds moving through and about us, worlds registering no more upon each other than do the thousands of wireless messages upon the receiver untuned to receive them, worlds interfering with each other no more than do the dozen messages that freed from contact with each other by their varying scales of vibration pass simultaneously over a single wire. On one of these interpenetrating worlds sailed this ship of Ishtar. Well, that is the blueprint for the simultane. And I don't think uh, that anybody described it quite that fully and that well before that particular period. If so, uh, please inform me. I'd like to know because I think that's the earliest full description of of the uh, of the parallel worlds theory. And um, now the ship of Ishtar uh, is a is a masterpiece and a classic for more reasons than just that. Uh, what we have here is, as Kenton finds out when he gets on the ship, uh, is uh, he. Uh, the ship is the eternal prison of the handmaiden of a of a, a priestess of Ishtar and the acolyte of a priest of Durgal that have been condemned by the gods to to live in conflict divided on this ship for all eternity. And this came about because uh, six thousand years earlier, the the the, uh, the priestess of Ishtar uh, and uh, and the priest of Nergal, the god of death, are uh, the counterpart of of Mot, 
um, they fell in love, and and they and they consummated this 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 love in uh, in the temple of Ishtar, and this was such a such a uh, sacrilege to the gods that that that. that the, the goddess of love and the god of death that that, that there are high priest and high priestess should come together and have this have this uh, uh, this illicit congress was so uh, so upsetting to the gods that they held a tribunal and the gods themselves stood in judgment and they and they cursed these uh, these two to this other dimension on this ship where they would forever be. Uh, be held, held apart by this barrier, and uh, so what happened was that, that so great was their love that after uh, a certain period of time they kept they kept trying to come together in this this invisible barrier, and their love was so great that they finally succeeded. They finally succeeded, and 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 they they went off to eternal bliss. In other words, they love. Love conquered the curse of the gods, but that left the the handmaiden of of the priestess of Ishtar and the acolyte of the uh, priest of Nergal. That left them to continue in this cursed state. But the difference being, however, then that there was no love between these two. Uh, the, the priestess, the the handmaiden of of the high priestess, uh, was certainly uh, uh, loyal to her her, her uh, priestess. But on the other hand, the uh, the acolyte of the high priest of Dergal had betrayed his master, and so uh, his side of the ship and his Entourage were entirely evil, and, and the beautiful Shireen on and her in the forecastle with her girls, they were were true to to the goddess, but they were still imprisoned. So, into this into this strange divided world drops uh, the American uh, archaeologist Kenton, and he and he is uh, and of course. Uh, has his adventures on either side of the ship, and he's very much, uh, in, very much taken with Serene, and she alternately hates him and loves him, and and he he finally, well, I can spoil the story for you, but it, anyway, it is a marvelous, marvelous story, lots of action, lots of, uh, lots of uh, excitement, and erotic in a in a in a. Uh, well, in a, a decent sort of way, but I mean, but obviously erotic because Shireen is, a, is very attractive and doesn't wear very much. And uh, so, but this this is this is this is literature. This is really, really is literature, and the descriptions are as you know as you know what I've said. It's just absolutely beautiful. Now, Merritt has been criticized, and they even mentioned it here in a Wikipedia article. He's criticized. For using purple prose and and uh, and too many adjectives and all of that, but that actually is not a valid criticism. And the reason for that is this: merit merit uses merit's descriptions are not icing on the cake. Merit's descriptions are the cake. In other words, he is 
he is a visionary and he is uh way ahead of his time as far as his perception of 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 uh, the uh, of, of of an altered state of consciousness. Let me put it this way: I'm not trying to say that he was that he was uh, stoned all the time when he wrote these things, but but he he had a very very modern way of looking at these ancient, uh, magnificent ancient fantasy uh, and these mytholo- mythological. It it the the visual descriptions should not be should not be considered uh purple prose or or uh or garnish. Uh if you are if you are a romantic you will appreciate every word merit writes. If you're not a romantic, now yeah, I'm sure if you don't if you don't if you don't uh, if you're not romantically inclined, then you're probably not going to appreciate it. But then if you're a magician and if you're you know you're interested in magic this uh, this man is an absolute master. He know he he isn't just superficially reading about the occult so he can write a story. He is steeped in all of this. He writes the stories for his own pleasure. He doesn't write them. He doesn't write them to make money. And he can make them. <laughs> you know. You know. Although he eventually his novels became so popular. And that that he was making money off of off of this this even though he didn't do he didn't write them for that reason. Uh, Merritt is as I said he is he is literature, and and the ship of Ishtar in in is is an, is a masterpiece. So I would strongly recommend that one. Um, but then again, on the other hand, Moonpool, which uh, we've discussed. Certainly has uh, has uh, you know a lot of aspects that relate to uh, to things we've done like the the film Beyond Lemuria and whatever and uh, um, and Kenneth Grant even you know he he, he liked the uh, Moonpool and and uh, the Lemurian aspects so um, let's discuss some other merit work that. I think is uh, would be very interesting. People, people of the pit. I said this. This influenced Lovecraft. Well, you people that that are uh, you know really into Lovecraft, you're going to realize that People of the Pit was the second story he published. The first one was Through the Dragon Glass, and that's a wonderful story about a magic mirror that uh, uh, that some wealthy collector brings back from the Boxer Rebellion in China. And uh, come out of the Imperial Palace, and this magic mirror—you go, you uh, uh, the dragons start coming alive around the frame, and and it sucks you right in, and you go into this magical world inside the mirror. And of course, naturally, there's a beautiful, mysterious woman in there that that uh, that's going to try to keep you from being attacked by the monster, and, and by the by the monster, the monster is is in fact. The, the the maker of the, the mirror world himself, and this through the dragon glass is is uh, well, it's it's, it's 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 that's a marvelous story, and that's what he started out with. That was his first shot out of the out of the out of the gun, and and then he followed that with a with a story called um, the people of the pit. 
Now, the people of the pit is the one that really got Lovecraft going because the people of the pit uh, takes is, is uh, a couple of um, a couple of hunters uh, up in Alaska, and they're they're way up there and, and uh, up toward the aurora borealis, and and uh, they uh, here, you know they're looking for this legendary um, uh, gold country that's up by these particular mountains, and they they run into this terribly deformed old uh, 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 former trapper, and this guy is terribly deformed, and he his 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 uh, hands are like hoofs. He's been climbing so so long trying to get up out of this 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 underground world, this subterranean world, that his his hands have turned into into uh, what looks like the the, the 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 hoofs of an animal, and he he's they call him the crawling man, and he's almost dead. And he tells him the story about how he found this mysterious land where the gold is supposed to be, and what it was was a a pit, a great big big pit that had a staircase leading down into it, stone staircase, very ancient. And he kept going down the staircase, and it and it went straight down, and it switched back, of course, and went straight down like a like a, um, a spiral staircase in a way around this around the sides of this pit, and it kept going down and down and down, thousands and thousands of feet, finally miles down. He, he kept going down and down and down, and this opened up like a bottle, uh, this pit, until he realized there was a whole world down there. And uh, a subterranean world, and he got down to the bottom, and there's very strange vegetation, and everything else. And then these these uh, these uh, alien creatures uh, that were sort of like like slugs, uh, and they, he couldn't see them at first, and and, and uh, they were they they chained him, and he made a slave out of him. We finally managed to escape them. But they kept. They had. They were telepathic. They had telepathic control. And he finally managed to escape. And he get, and he crawled. He crawled up the steps, and this was literally miles and miles and miles up these steps that he kept crawling and crawling and crawling and crawling. And finally, of course, he got to the top, and 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 by that time he was almost dead. So um, he, of course, expires after telling the story. And the the two adventurers they bury him, and that's the end of it. Well, now obviously this story had a had a very Lovecraftian, and also Shaver naturally uh, was influenced by it. So this was this was the story, People of the Pit. Now um, Merritt did uh, a few. Uh, he did uh, a couple of other things that were. A little bit more on the on the supernatural thriller, or the uh, the the uh, a little bit less exotic, but uh, nonetheless very very interesting. One of them is called Seven Footprints to Satan, and that's more like a thriller. Satan is uh, yeah, well he he could be a human being. He's kind of a in a way he's kind of a Crowley type character, uh, but. He has this huge, uh, widespread international cult, very secret and very, 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 very affluent. And he uses 
of the seven magical footprints of Buddha. And there's no legends. You know, Merit was always collecting these these obscure legends from other countries to other civilizations and all. So Merit had this idea of the seven footprints of Buddha, uh, baby footprints, and Buddha supposedly took these seven steps and, and then ascended to heaven or, or whatever. And and if, if uh, as, so Satan uses these uh, as a game, and you um, you get to uh, walk on the seven footprints, and if and they light up, and if you walk on the right combination, then you can actually have all of Satan's power if you win the game. And all of Satan's power will be given to you. And of course, he has obviously tremendous power. But if you don't, you die a horrible death. And of course, everybody enjoys watching that. So this is uh, this is Satan's game. Well, of course, the game is rigged. Obviously, nobody's going to win. But but people keep trying it. And and, uh, and and of course, the point of the story obviously is is that that uh, the people that are going to try this game, <laughs> they probably deserve to deserve to get what they get anyway. But it's still the game is rigged. And and uh, it's, 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 this story um, is not quite the same as as the Lost Race and the Lost World stories that, that uh, Barrett does. Uh, he had one called The Face in the Abyss, uh, which also included a, one called The Snake Mother, and this is set down in Peru uh, with an Atlantean kind of a, a survival thing. Uh, and The Face in the Abyss cried golden tears. And this had a lot of flavor to it, and also uh, was a survival, as I say, a survival of Atlanta's story. And um, uh, one of the uh, one of the stories he did um, was set in the in the sunken city off the coast of France. This this legend of the sunken city called Yves off the coast of France, and this is a very obscure legend, but it's very it's a very haunting. And a beautiful legend, and the king of East uh, uh, is so married. Uh, There's a story centered on that, and and he did uh, one called Bird Witch Burn, which uh, got made into a film. Uh, that uh, that that featured these uh, these animated devil dolls, and the witch uh, produced these devil dolls and these little these little animated. Dolls would go out and 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 kill people, and this is kind of you know like Chucky. <laughs> this, there have been a, a lot of different versions of of, of uh, Barris Devil Doll story, um, uh, both on Twilight Zone and and the original film had Lionel Barrymore in it. Um, uh, the uh, uh, so this this was one that he had. It was made into a film, and uh, the one of the stories that uh, you know that I that I really, um, really warmed up to and enjoyed was, uh, let me see here if I can find it, um, this particular one, I wanted to get the title of it, um, yeah, it was, the, um, um, it was the, the metal monster that we talked about a little while ago, and what this, uh, the, the interesting thing about the metal monster is that he creates a, a creature that is so completely different from anything that uh, uh, that anything that we had 
could conceive of before. It's it's a it's it's a living creature of metal that manages to put itself together into various forms, almost like uh, like I say, it influenced the Transformers story very very definitely, and and it it also uh, is. Yes, for in, in a in a presage of solar power, it is sucking power from the sun. It's robbing the Earth's. It, it really is. It 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 has these huge uh, fields robbing the Earth of solar power and solar energy. And this uh, this is a very very uh, kind of a scary concept because you know we do derive so much power from the sun. Anyway, and uh, merit uh, is is a terrific uh, influence on on both uh, the occult and uh, and of course on uh, other writers, other writers of, of fantasy. So uh, I think he he really fits into our our magical perspective, and I think that that we should that we should uh, especially um, you know. Um, Pay attention to his ship of Ishtar, and you know when I I said that that, that the the ship of Ishtar influenced our our um, our soul travel boat, and so I, but I should I should mention that that uh, Merritt uh, didn't just make this ship of Ishtar up out, out of whole cloth. Uh, he had uh, he had the French writer Lane Armand in his collection, and Lane Armand mentions uh, a, a, a bark that Ishtar sails across the ocean to uh, reach the underworld, and uh, so they, he borrowed from that, and that was where he got the idea. But when what we did, uh, when you know, based upon the, the ship of Ishtar. Uh, we created a, a soul boat, which is which is uh, all black on the uh, on the port side and all white on the starboard side to match the, the two pillars in the temple. And it has it's shaped like an ibis, in other words, it has an ibis beak. Those of you who have uh, the pathworking video, you see um you can see the boat on the altar top at the end of the at the end of the pathworking video and it has a cockpit it has a rudder it has a compass in it and then it has two uh candle holders on the on the forts uh where you put these little colored candles on there and it has a nice uh, uh fan tail it's uh, detailed and silver and the wings are folded of course along the side of the boat so you place it on top of the altar and point it toward uh, the soul door or toward a hanging mirror, and then you can, um, you know, make yourself, uh, make your spirit body very small and climb, climb out on the altar top, get in the boat, and sail through that soul door or mirror. And you can fly over the paths that you have already traversed. That's the idea of it. And this this came from, this idea actually came from the, uh, the, the was derived from the ship of Ishtar, which in turn was derived uh, from from later on. So, uh, merit has been an influence on us and on Shaver and on Lovecraft and on uh, and on. I, I'm sure many many magicians have have uh, have really really enjoyed his beautiful stories, and so. 
next week we will we will certainly uh, have a good show for you. So we'll see you then. And meanwhile, good magic.